0: A curmudgeon here today, um, but I, I just have to gripe about something. So I'm glad you're all here. <laughs> I have a feeling that I'm not alone in this, but I just hate, loathe, detest just waiting. Waiting bothers me, which explains at least in part why I cannot stand amusement parks. Did you know that if you visit the Magic Kingdom for a day, by the way, for which you will pay $105 if you're an adult and if you're a child three through nine, $99, and since when has a 10-year-old been an adult? In what, I think what I asked is, in what kingdom is a 10-year-old an adult? <laughs> the magic. <laughs> if you visit one day and visit the top five attractions in the park, according to thrilldata.com, you will spend an average, an average of 10 hours and 46 minutes in line. Or online, to be grammatically correct, or on cue, to be pedantic. I mean, this barely gives you time to wait on cue for food, which I personally find particularly distressing. This is not in my notes, but it just came to mind that at one time, Disney employed more queue theorists, PhDs, in lining up than any organization on Earth. Their whole goal was to never let you see the end of the line. You never know how long the line is. Think about it if you've ever been there. You're always turning corners and being entertained and going around like this. And all you can see are about 30 people in front of you, but you never see the whole thing. They're messing with your brain. But just waiting, just waiting seems like such a waste of time that I could be spending doing something, just anything else. According to the internet, the average American will spend north of f- of five years. That never gets a laugh, according to the internet. <laughs> like that's the authoritative. According to the internet, the average American will spend north of five years of their life just waiting, on lines or queues or at red lights, which will occupy. About six months of that time, just a little over six months of that time, at red lights. I mean, it just breaks the heart. And it's impossible to avoid. We spend a lot of our life waiting. And this has always been the case. Jesus spent a good deal of time talking about waiting, as he was in this week's gospel. We're at a point in Luke where Jesus is talking about his second coming. That time when he will usher in the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. When justice is perfectly done. When everything that's wrong will be made right again. I say again because that's the point of the scriptures. That is the narrative arc of redemptive history. The simplest way to understand this is as a story in four chapters. And by the way, you do have, I hope, this in your bulletin somewhere. These four pictures. These four pictures were icons at Redeemer in the early days because they represent the narrative arc of the scriptures creation, fall, restoration, and consummation. We know how the world ought to be because of creation. We know the world that is because mankind fell, and all of creation was thrown off kilter and bent. We know, we know that there are some things that we can do to bring redemption to the world around us. And we do know what will be because of the consummation that we're told about in Revelation 21 and 22 and in many other glimpses of it in the Old Testament prophets. Ought, is, can, will. That's the story of the scriptures. And interestingly, every human being on the planet, without knowing this at all, This is their relational DNA. This is how everyone solves problems. We have an image of what ought to be. I parked my car in the lot out there this morning. It ought to be there when I get out, right? If it's not, it's going to cause some dissonance in me. But I will have to deal with what is. I will have to recognize that my car has been maybe stolen. I know that there are some things that I can do about it because I have agency. What am I going to do? I'm going to get on the phone, call the police. And if everything goes well, it will have a good outcome. Everyone solves problems based on the narrative arc of the scriptures. It's embedded in us. So it's good for us to have this in mind as we're thinking about what Jesus is talking about because where we find ourselves is in Can. It's in the third picture. It's that bike that's broken and bent, but there are the tools there, there that, are, that are around it being repaired. Um, interestingly, the, the story of the scriptures, and we tried to reflect these in these pictures, is it begins in a garden, kind of organic and natural, and it ends in a city, which is something that's done not by creation, but by participation with God, human beings participating with God together. And so it's kind of customized, which I really think is kind of cool. But ought is, can, will. We find ourselves in the third picture now in can, the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God inaugurated with Jesus' first coming but not going to be fulfilled till his second coming. So it's important because it helps us frame all of the rest of the biblical story. And, and what we read in the eighth chapter of Romans, in verses, particularly verses 18 through 25, Paul describes that time, this, this time of, of, um, of is and can, this time of brokenness. As all of creation groaning, waiting in eager expectation for the day when, uh, when the redemption that's already begun in God's daughters and sons through Jesus Christ, uh, the redemption of our bodies when we're resurrected into the fullness of the kingdom of God, when Jesus returns again to earth. All of creation is waiting for that. The apostle John describes in the final two chapters of the book of Revelation, will, trees laden once again with fruit, no hunger ever. The nations healed, no wars or even rumors of wars. The curse finally, finally lifted from our bodies no more disease or death and if you close your eyes and imagine the image is tantalizing and yet Christians we're not to keep our eyes closed our hope is in the future but our eyes have to be in the present And here in the present, things are not at all like John describes in Revelation. I don't have to be descriptive because we all see and sense the incredible brokenness of the world around us. And if that tells us anything, it's that Jesus' second advent hasn't yet happened. In Jesus' first advent, the power of sin was given a crushing and ultimately fatal blow. The sting of death was taken away, though we still grieve. And we got a foretaste of what's to come. Healings and feedings and restoration and resurrection. And yet, frustratingly, we're told to wait. But not to just wait. What are we to do with our waiting in the now and not yet? Not nothing. It's not just waiting. And Jesus tells a parable that gives us some specific instruction, the mark and main activity of every believer in the in-between. Wait for it. Pray. And that prayer according to this parable, it has two specific marks. First, it is kingdom come prayer. And secondly, it's perseverant prayer. That is, it's prayer that has God's justice as its desire and chief end, and it's prayer that persists. This parable is a remarkably easy one to follow. It has a simple plot and only two characters. The first, the first is the only judge in a one-judge town. His job is to give judgments on any legal matters and problems that arise. We're told off the bat that he neither fears God nor has any particular regard for people. To fear God in the Old Testament is to fear him as judge. And through this statement, Jesus is saying that this judge has no concern for the judgments and justice of God. And so if there's no justice of God to be reckoned with, why should he particularly care himself about being just. He can just do what he wants. It's As Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote in The Brothers Karamazov, when there is no God, everything is permissible. And I I have to tell you I think we're seeing the truth of that every day in our own culture. We're also told that Not only does he not believe in God, he has no regard for people. Today, even if someone is an atheist to the core, they still often have great compassion for people. This judge, however, doesn't. He's got only one good attribute that I can see in this parable, and that's that he's entirely consistent. He might agree more with the present-day position of some that there is no God and uncreated mankind as ultimately nothing more than protoplasmic slime from a primordial soup of no eternal consequence, endowed with no unique worth. And if that's true, why should he be regarded with any inherent and God-given dignity? We see this being practically played out in, in the political arguments of our day, right and left especially regarding the absolute most vulnerable, the unborn. But this disregard for human dignity and worth is not a new problem. So that's the judge, and that's his problem. Jesus then introduces us to the second person in the story, the justice seeker, the widow. And as a widow, she was considered amongst the most powerless of people. She had no social status to protect her, but we're told in Psalm 68.5 that as a widow, she has God himself as her protector. In fact, God says that widows are a primary concern of his justice and mercy, and in the Old Testament, all kinds of laws were put into effect to protect them. This judge, however, could care less. So she tries to get justice, and he blows her off. Over and over and over. What was she to do? She had no money to grease his palms. She had no social clout to speed the wheels of justice. She had only one thing. Persistence. Undaunted and undeterred. Persistence. And while we're told that the judge is himself persistent, he's no match for this woman. Eventually he has... To say to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not wear me out by her continual coming. And so he eventually grants her justice. So up to this point, she's been unjustly treated by at least two people or institutions, an unjust judge and someone Jesus simply calls her adversary. But she's been legitimately mistreated. But she would not allow herself to live as a victim. And as with all the stories Jesus tells in this part of Luke, he's talking directly to first century Israel and the imminent destruction they faced at the hands of Rome. But also, as with all the stories Jesus tells in this part of Luke, it transcends that particularity and has something to teach us today as well. And in either case, this parable is about prayer, persistent and faithful prayer. But there's more to it, because we shouldn't divorce the characteristic of the person praying from the content of their prayer, and the prayer of this persistent widow is for justice. The story is not intended to refer to prayer in general, as though we need to pester God for every need until he grudgingly responds. It's about a particular kind of persistent prayer for his justice. These prayers are to be kingdom come prayers, and they're to be faithful and persistent. Sure, I I mean, we all agree on that, but praying in general is something that's easy to talk about but hard to practice It's something most of us would vaguely say there's power in, but most of us lack the power to do it. Why is that? I bet there are lots of reasons, but let me offer you one that maybe you haven't thought about before. Much of the time, prayer finds its impetus in trouble. That is, we pray when we recognize the trouble we're in. Easy to pray then. The problem is, we find ourselves so generally insulated from trouble, or at least we imagine that we feel little need or motivation to spend our time praying. It's like, you know, it's like this wife, they're having, they're having trouble with one of their children, and, 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 and she comes to him and says, maybe, maybe we should just pray about it. To which he responds, oh, no, has it come to that? <laughs> that, that was a joke, <laughs> which obviously isn't if you have to tell people that it is. But this widow had one advantage over us. She knew she was in trouble. Eugene Peterson writes about prayer and this problem of not recognizing we're in trouble. The human condition, he writes, teeters on the edge of disaster. Human beings are in trouble most of the time, and those who don't know they're in trouble are in the worst trouble. He goes on to, he he then quotes a friend, he says, I only pray when I'm in trouble, and I'm in trouble all the time. And goes on to say, the secret of fulfilling St. Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing is primarily a watchful recognition of the trouble we're in. But we, we assume we're not in trouble. We imagine there are no problems facing us that we can't handle on our own if only we're determined enough. But that's only a case of imagination gone awry. We are in trouble not to panic anyone. And our lack of crying out to God as he expects his saints to do is a failure to perceive the trouble that we ourselves and humanity as a whole are in. It's also a failure to perceive the heart of our justice-loving God who one day, because of the cries of the saints will bring to fruition that picture of wholeness the closing chapters of revelation so beautifully paint faithful persistent prayer is so often forged in the crucible of trouble and what troubles us or what should is that things are not as they ought to be What ought to genuinely distress us is that everything in God's good creation, including the human soul, wobbles desperately off kilter. And because we understand God's good intention for creation, we ought to be longing to see the order of creation redeemed. But there's too much that's wrong, there's too much that's bent, too much that doesn't make sense, too much that's chaotic, too much that isn't good. So much that we ought to be constantly crying out, Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about that final bringing about of wholeness to people, to cultures, to the earth and to the cosmos. All that's corrupted, all that's wrong will one day be completely transformed and made right again. The overthrow of evil, the the end of sin, the healing of all relationships. The death of death. All those things that are part of the corruption of creation brought about by the fall. What Jesus is talking about is direct God's direct intervention, the making of the whole of creation as it ought to be. We use various words for it, peace, shalom, justice, the kingdom come. Jesus inaugurated that kingdom with his first advent, but we still wait, we we still wait for more to be done. As king, he now rules in our own hearts and he rules through our hearts in our lives so that we can work at making a difference in the world around us right now. You might call that phase one of the kingdom of God, but what Jesus is telling us to pray for here is phase two kingdom of God coming in its fullness. Everything that's wrong, made right again. God's justice fully done. So faithful prayer is justice centered prayer. Are we engaged in it? Are we fervently and persistently praying for God's kingdom to come? And if not, why not? Do we have a sense of the scope of the brokenness of the world? And do we understand the heart of God who gave his only son and allowed him to be torn open for us so that the open wounds of the hearts of those who receive him and all creation might eventually be healed? That's what he came to do. He came to redeem a people, but he also came to redeem a cosmos. And the phrase in Romans 8 that describes the, the creation waiting in eager expectation means literally waiting on tiptoe, groaning for the redemption of God's people so that it, too, can be completely restored. That's what we long for, and that's what we work for, and that's what we pray for. Have you grown indifferent or complacent? Much of what we pray for each Sunday in the prayers of the people is the brokenness of the world. Have those just become so much noise? The adult sound from Charlie Brown, which by the way is Lauren's ringtone on my phone. But we have to always keep in mind that there are no rote prayers. There are only rote hearts. And when our hearts get rote, we have to deal with that. Are you praying these kinds of kingdom come prayers at home? Or as you're walking or driving through the city? Or as you're experiencing the dysfunction of a broken work culture? Is it your default? And if not, why not? Just one more thing. These aren't just kingdom come prayers. They're also persevering prayers. We're told here that Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they should pray and never give up. But how do we do that in the face of the brokenness we see around us? How can we persevere and not just throw up our hands? How can we not give up on a world that seems so hell-bent on destruction? And in anticipation of those obvious questions, Jesus gives us both a promise and a challenge in verse eight of Luke 18. The promise? I tell you, he will give them justice and speedily. And the challenge? When the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now some parables that we read are in the scriptures are parables of similarity. The prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. When we look at those parables, we're meant to say to ourselves, Ah. So that's what God's like. Others are parables of contrast. When we look at them, we're meant to say, God is not like that at all. This is a parable of contrast. The lesson isn't, well, I guess if this unjust judge uh, eventually gave this widow justice after she nagged and nagged at him, then I guess if we nag and nag at God, he'll eventually get off his throne and do something about the problems we see around us. No. The lesson is, if that widow can get justice from an unjust judge, how much more will our God, the God who loves justice, delight in giving justice to those who cry out for it persistently? And the answer is that he will give justice to them speedily. Will God remain unmoved, Jesus asks? Will the saints have long to wait? No, God will vindicate the saints, and it won't be long. And if a widow can get justice out of a corrupt judge, how much more will our longings for justice, for wholeness, be given to us by God? But here's the why in this parable. Jesus is received only in response to the faithful. Justice is received only in response to the faithful, persistent cries of his people what we're told and promised by God is that our prayers do affect what takes place in the affairs of mankind and will hasten justice. So prayer then becomes not just something you're supposed to do, but a mind-blowing privilege and a grave and serious responsibility. It's not a mystical escape from the world. It's an intense historical engagement for the world. Finally, the last challenging words of this parable, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What does Jesus mean by that? I mean, does, does, does he mean, gee, I hope people will still believe in me by, that, by the time I get back? Candidly, I don't think he's that insecure. Does he mean, will the church still exist? I don't think he means that either. He said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I believe he's asking, will there be such a quality of faith in the hearts and minds of my people that they will still care about justice and continue to pray for it in light of everything that looks to the contrary of justice ever coming? Is that the quality of faith that will be present in my people? And if we fail to pray for justice, it seems to mean one of three things. Either our hearts are hard, God doesn't hear, or he hears and doesn't care. And if that's the case, we make him out to be even worse than the unjust judge himself. No, Jesus tells us, when I return, I will see that they get justice quickly, but I will I find that faith that still seeks it when I return? To be sure, that faith will be tried. There will be times when justice seems a long way off or too complex or impossible. It can even seem too long in coming. And so we wait. And while we wait, we pray. We pray for justice. And of course, we not only pray for justice, we work for it. Because to live in a way that's inconsistent with what one prays is hypocrisy. But even when we work for justice, we don't believe that it's ultimately going to be what changes the world that that is ultimately going to be what changes the world. We know from the scriptures that takes the work of God. And so all of our work making better cultures and our tutoring and our charity and our feeding of people, as critical as these things are, as foretastes of the kingdom of God, will not ultimately bring about the kingdom of God. The thing Jesus says that will bring it about, and speedily, are the faithful, persistent, kingdom come prayers of his people, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.